Hey there, everybody. It's Tyler. I'm Danny. And it's another episode of Fried Squirms, where we're not having two movies go head to head. <laughs> oh, what a relief. <laughs> what a fucking relief. <laughs> My weekend was so much smoother not having to watch two craptastic movies in no, a row. kidding, right? So, this week, you've probably already seen the title. We're going to be talking about Basket Case. Before we get there, man, I mean... We've alluded to it on the fact that we let you guys peek behind the curtain sometimes anyway. Like, I just got done recording. I'm already a bit high, but let's get higher, apparently. That's right. Let's get higher, baby. <laughs> and start in with some green hits. Danny, what did you bring for me to, again here today? All right. So today I brought the pineapple strain over, and this one is the less famous than the Hollywood-inspired Pineapple Express, but this one is actually older and more influential and arguably a better strain. So this one is definitely more potent. Its THC levels exceed about 19% roughly. This particular strain, it's known for its energizing, euphoric, happy, relaxing, and uplifting effects. And the flavors, of course, you'll get some citrus notes, pineapple, sweet, and tropical. And the aromas include earthy, mango, and sweet. And it is a 50-50 hybrid, sativa and indica. And it's one I really do enjoy, man. It's a good strain. I brought some lamb's bread. I think I've brought it before. Primarily, if not full sativa. It's... Just a Jamaican strain. Yeah, boy. A little bit of energy. A nice. little bit of a head high. Yeah. Got some herbal, some peppery, some citrus in there. Just a pretty straightforward Jamaican strain. Right near the beach. Rumors that maybe Bob Marley encountered it at one Ooh. point. But, I mean, fucking Marley probably encountered a shit ton of weed. Like, <laughs> oh, my come gosh. Come on, man. Like, yeah, no who kidding. Who the fuck cares about that? Anyway. Oh, I'm going to light up that fucking pineapple you brought. Also, maybe we should get to the guts and bolts. Sounds like a deal. Hell yeah. Guts and bolts. All right, guts and bolts for basket case. Let's see here. Oh, yeah, I suppose I'm starting off with spoiler-free setup. Like, how spoiler-free is spoiler-free? Should I just say two brothers? I mean, you could. <laughs> I mean, it's essentially... <laughs> Yeah, it's about two brothers, it is. <laughs> two brothers set out for revenge against the doctors that separated them at birth. I'm going to be stupid vague with it. <laughs> so that's a pretty decent that's, level that's setup. That's what the movie's about, though, right? Like, two brothers oh, yeah. set out for... I mean, I'm... If y'all know what Basket Case is, you know what the fuck I'm doing right now. Like, I'm underselling. I mean, the film is almost 40 years old. I hope you have somewhat of an inkling about it. Right, so... If you don't mind the mildest of spoilers and have never seen the box art, then one brother is carrying his intensely deformed, formerly conjoined twin around in a basket as they're committing these acts of revenge. So yeah. that's more accurately the movie you're getting. I think so, and that's fair. Right, and of course, week to week, we like to talk about the people who go into making the film and the people in front of the camera. And this week, I'm going to lead off with our writer and director and editor on this film, and that gentleman is Frank Kennenlauter. And if you're not familiar, he is known for such films and shorts, including such things as Slash of the Knife. Now, a little bit of a spoiler, he went on to do Basket Case 2 and 3, so there are some sequels to this franchise. He's also known for the films Brain Damage, Frankenhooker, Bad Biology, 
the Herschel Gordon Lewis, the Godfather of Gore video documentary, mm. the documentary Chasing Banksy, which I've actually seen. That's a really good documentary. And more recently, The Boiled Angels, The Trial of Mike Diana, which is another documentary as well. All right. And now included with that, we have cinematographer Bruce Torbett, who was known actually for being the DP on Brian De Palma's debut film, and that was called Murder a la Mode which is murder and fashion. He's also known for being the DP on the film Mississippi Summer and the film Brain Damage. The music was composed by Gus Russo. The only other credit that is included in his filmography is Brain Damage. Now we have a couple gentlemen here, some really interesting names on the special effects, and we have John Caglione Jr., and John is known for some actually really awesome films. If you go back and look at his filmography, such things as Friday the 13th Part Two. He also helped as the makeup assistant in New York for the film The Hunger. He was also a part of Amityville 3D, The Makeup Illusions. He was also part of Chud, a film mm. that we're not unfamiliar with. Nice. He also helped with the film Manhunter in 86, really? Poltergeist Part 3, The Blob. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he won an award for his special character makeups design on the film Dick Tracy back in 1990. He also helped on the film Glory Days. He did several episodes of SNL back in the 80s through the 90s. He also helped with such things as Amistad. You might have seen his work on the film The Hurricane, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, Geely, Angels in America, The Sopranos, 310 to Yuma. It's just a, like I said, a wealth of films, man. Pretty interesting name. And the other gentleman actually helped with the creation of the Siamese brother okay, <laughs> in this, yeah. the makeup effects. And that gentleman is Kevin Haney. And Kevin, once again, he's got some really interesting credits. Those include Amityville, 3D, Chud, Cocoon. He also helped with Poltergeist Part 3, Driving Miss Daisy, which he won an award for, The Addams Family, the film The Babe, which is actually pretty decent, Hocus Pocus from 93, Muppets Tonight was a television series in 96, the film Air Force One, a couple episodes of The X-Files, several episodes of Friends, the film AI, Men in Black 2, Planet of the Apes, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, so yeah, some interesting films here as well. This was produced by Arnold H. Brooke, Edgar Ivins and Tom Kay. The production companies were Basket Case Productions. The distributor was Analysis Film Releasing Corporation, which they helped with the 1982 United States theatrical release. It was released here in the States on April 2nd, 1982. It had an estimated budget of around $35,000. And I do have a tagline. I know there's a couple, but this is the one that I actually have on my Arrow release of it. And the tagline is, The Tenant in Room 7 is very small, very twisted and very mad. Nice. All right. So moving ahead, we have the cast of Basket Case, and I'm going to lead off with Kevin Van Hintenrick, and he plays the role of Dwayne Bradley. And Kevin, he's known for such films as Brain Damage. He also reprises his role in Basket Cases Part 2 and 3. He was also in the film The Absence of Light, the film Rapturous. He was in a film Dry Bones a film with Jason Mewes, uh, Catch of the Day from 2014. And more recently, he was in J.J. Villard's Fairy Tales as the Big Bad Wolf for the Little Red Riding Hood episode, which he voiced for here in 2020. All right, we have Terry Susan Smith. She plays the role of Sharon. The only other credit to note is she helped with the television series Sundays back in 2011. We have Beverly Bonner, who plays the role of Casey in this film. 
Now, she's known for being in such films as Brain Damage. She was in Basket Case 2 and 3. She was also in Frankenhooker, Bad Biology, See You Next Tuesday, and One for the Road. All right, we have Robert Vogel, who plays the hotel manager. He was known for the films Waitress. He was in the film Rent Control. And also, I believe, an episode or two of the Hunter television series back in 1987. Hmm. All right, we have three actors and one actress. This is their only film credit, but I'm going to lead off with Diane Brown. She plays the role of Dr. Judith Cutter. We have Lloyd Pace. He plays the role of Dr. Harold Needleman. Bill Freeman, he plays the role of Dr. Julius Lifflander. And then we have Joe Clark, who plays the role of Brian Mickey O'Donovan. He has been in such films as McCabe and Mrs. Miller. He was also in the Law television series back in 75. He was also part of the Greatest American Hero television series back in 82. And he was also in the film Nobody's Fool. Now, there's somebody else I want to mention really quick before uh, getting into warnings. Yeah. We have a couple of other people. Like I'm going to name them real briefly because they do play a bit part. One of them is the father of Dwayne in this film. He is uh, Richard Pierce. And Ruth Newman plays the role of the aunt of the family. And mm-hmm. the kid that I wanted to name, he doesn't have a great performance in this, but he plays the young Dwayne. This gentleman's name is Sean McCabe. Now, as far as an actor, he's just been a bit parts, but he's more or less known for his stunt work in Hollywood. And some really cool films. He was on the film Aliens, Death Wish 3. He was also in Willow. Now, mind you, these are all stunt work. He was also a stunt man in the film Nightbreed. Oh, shit. Yeah. He also did stunt work in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Aliens Part 3, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles for a few episodes. He also helped with the Three Musketeers movie back in 93. You might have seen some of his work in GoldenEye back in 95, the film Hamlet, Titanic, The Mummy. Yeah, man, just some really cool stuff. I think more recently... It'd be funny yeah. if he was the guy that hit the propeller on the way down. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> some of his more recent work, which actually is not really more recent, this is like super early 2000s, they include the films Vertical Limit, Buffalo Soldiers, Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, and then Beyond Borders. So that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. You gave us a brief setup of the film. Definitely should give you some warnings. Oof. Your usual, you know, language, some nudity. Language, some nudity, violence, gore. Not the most intense gore, but enough to call it gore. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. There's some sexual content that you might be, you know, a little uncomfortable with. I mean, yeah. Based on dialogue, you might have to count it as an attempted rape. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. But something also definitely went on there as hinted by what he's kind of splashing around in we'll get there but (laughs) sexual assault of some kind the mostly seen in the aftermath i agree with that but still nonetheless you might be a little averse to that kind of stuff but i'm trying to think i mean uh, i hate to say it like that because i don't know how much i want to say this but i mean it is considered a creature feature too yeah but i don't want to say how much you know what i mean i don't want to give all the details away well, I mean, uh, we haven't said the name yet, but Belial could be considered kind of disturbing just to look at Yeah. in general. Like, it's kind of a body horror? Uh, yeah, a little bit. You could see, yeah, yeah, yeah. More than a, necessarily a creature? Yeah, I know, it's weird, but... I wouldn't call Belial a creature. No, but I've seen it, you know, considered a creature feature. I mean, I understand maybe the mm-hmm. designation, but 
Eh, it's not your stereotypical kind of creature feature, I suppose. Fuck it, let's get into it. <laughs> How did it make us squeal? How does that make you squeal? All right, fuck, let's get into it. <laughs> so I had actually never seen this before. First, I guess, to start everything off. Like, this was my first time. Now, I can't say for certain if I'd ever seen it prior to a few years ago, because I did want to go see this over at the Roxy. It played, like, on one of the cult nights. Okay, and it was yeah. kind of late, and I worked that day, and I was like, ah, I was starting to fade out, and I, I didn't go, but I wound up watching it on Shutter anyway. Mm. So I was like, fuck it, I'll just bring the theater to me. <laughs> you know so i did wind up watching it and i was like man i don't know if i ever watched this film growing up even if i did i don't remember much if any at all of the film so more recently i've seen it within the last two years and really liked it because it fit a certain aesthetic it fit a certain bill of films that we have reviewed not only in the past but some more recently that have that kind of feel to it you know so i was kind of I was anticipating doing this at some point, man, and, and then watching another one of his films, it's like, man, that almost solidifies, <laughs> you know, having to, to review some of his films. But anyway, I have a brief history with it. I've only seen it in recent memory once leading into this review. So it's pretty dope, right? I like, like it a lot. I really do. I mean, to get down to the fucking brass tacks, like, it was pretty dope. So my ultimate feeling on this movie is I wish I would have watched it sooner in life. So I could have rewatched it a shit ton in the times of my life when I had more time to just eternally rewatch movies. That being said, like I super fucking dug this movie, <laughs> but I think there's other movies like if I wanted to scratch this itch, oh, I yeah. might watch beforehand. But I get it. Like the cult following all makes sense. It's a fantastic movie because like. It kind of, at least for me, I, I feel like it sort of scratches the same itch as like the, the Stuart Gordon films. Yeah, and you can definitely put it in those molds. Some of the films I was kind of alluding to and I said it fit this bill was, you know, we've reviewed Henry. Not that it it's the same, but it has a certain like 80s feel to it. Mm -hmm. Then we've done stuff like Chud and, you know, there's some other films in the, along I the way. I said it felt a little chuddy to me too, yeah. in a weird way, but... I wouldn't have yeah, been able to put even it in like words, a little bit like Maniac with you know William Lustig and Joe Spinell. So it has a certain feel, and it doesn't hurt the fact too that most of this was shot in and around Manhattan back in the early '80s. So it also has that old school Forty Second Street sleazy kind of grimy New York feel to it. And we've talked about it before, but like the sleazy New York that we grew up with, I still kind of instantly think of that New York when I hear New York. Right. And I have to like self-adjust to be like, <laughs> even though I've never even yeah. been there, but I, I know it's not like that anymore. Like oh, I've not seen even fucking close. live streams of shit. Like I know what it looks like. Yeah. Like, at least parts of it, I know what it looks like. Yeah, and I was there, you know, 20 years after the fact when this film was made. So I can attest to the fact that it's a completely different 42nd Street than what was shot in this film. But when somebody just says New York, I think this New York. Mm -hmm. Or at the very latest, like Ninja Turtles 1 New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kiss some Casey Jones and shit. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Which is still the same sort of feel. Yeah, it's still dark. It's still menacing, you know. But then I think the 90s and then the 2000s hit. And then, of course, there was a different aesthetic. It had more of a glam feel. So this one, and I was kind of mentioning this to my uncle last night, too. I have a certain nostalgia, mainly because we grew up with films that fit this kind of feel and, like I said, aesthetic and all that stuff. So, yeah, there's times where it makes me think back, you know, this is the 80s New York and 
the films that were coming out around that time. And yeah, it's just kind of a nostalgic feel. And I like that this film wasted no time in getting one of the people that only have one credit onto the fucking screen. I don't know how to explain the difference to when bad acting becomes charming, Mm -hmm. but it was there. And I knew right from the get-go, I'm like, oh, this is one of those movies. Oh, this is going to be great. Because him just trying to shoot Belial. Oh, my God. All right, I was going to ask you. I didn't know if I was looking at this wrong or maybe I was projecting onto this guy. I was like, is he shooting the gun with both fingers? Think the so? way he was squeezing, it looked I like think it. He was squeezing with both fingers. I'm like, oh, he's not hitting shit doing that. <laughs> and it's just funny, like even his dialogue, you know, you can tell he doesn't have much acting experience if at all. And hence, probably like this is his only film credit. But it's like, all right, they're trying. And then when he does get off, it's like, all right, you kind of have maybe an inkling of where this film could go in the direction because yeah, the gore's not bad. Gore's it's just kind of cheesy. It's a little cheesy, but what it leads to always looks pretty good yeah like oh shit it's that's not that bad too extreme with no. maybe you could argue cutter is pretty oh yeah up. yeah yeah but everyone else it's mostly just various cuts it is and but they all look good like, i was gonna say they do really look good and i think that thing that helps separate this film from something that could be taken a little too serious is the fact that there's moments of sometimes looks bad well that too and then there's moments of comedy or you know interspersed Mm -hmm. at least it dampens what could be deemed as like ultra violent not jokey comedy though no 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 i mean it's real under dark humor or even just i mean the guy who has the smoothest line delivery in the movie is the fucking drug dealer at the very beginning god man that shit had me like (laughs) admit well they didn't say this how much they didn't say this outright about this particular person, but some of that stuff that they did on the streets, particularly this scene where Dwayne's, you know, walking on the strip, was that they were doing a lot of guerrilla shooting, mm-hmm. you know, because of the limit budget. And we've already talked about some of these films back then. Is like they didn't, they didn't always get permits to shoot those scenes. So there was a lot of people like that would come out on the streets, especially shop owners, because you know back then it was seedy. For a lot of peep shows and porno stores, and mm-hmm. they didn't want to be on film. And it made me wonder, I was like, I bet you this was a real dude trying to sell Kevin and slash Dwayne in this. That'd be fucking funny. Holy fuck. And it made me wonder, I was like, I wonder if it was. They just kept it in there because that guy doesn't have any credit in this film. (laughs) In my head, it was Pumpkin Escobar's father. (laughs) I just wrote down my note for that was, uh, I got joints and bags, nickels and dimes. And then he goes into a spiel about all the shit he has. I'm like, I wanted to write it all down, and then I was like, fuck that, I'm not... No, I wrote a little shorthand stuff of what he included. This is mostly his first refrain. Is he's like, I got acid, blotter, rainbows, window pane, speed, downs, second all, value, mescaline, THC. Then he was like, I got Columbia Red Gold. I got blah, 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 blah. And he goes on, and then he's like, he's like, what, you want some women? I got women. He's keeping walking. He's like, what the fuck's wrong with you anyway? <laughs> I'm like... Damn, what a time to have been in New York back then. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that would have been fun. It's just, wow, how wild is that? But anyhow, what I find interesting, too, is when he checks into the hotel, the hotel itself is not a real hotel. I don't know if you read anything about that or not. No, I didn't. Yeah, so it's really interesting. So even the sign for the hotel, that was one of the few sets designs that was actually constructed, right? They used... 
one of the guys who does special effects, I didn't mention him because he only does one scene for special effects, and that happened to be Dr. Cutter's scene, but mm. his name is um, Eugis Nigels, and he was friends with Henan Lauder. They worked at this like photo print company or whatnot, and they became friends, and he helped Henan Lauder do some of his shorts and whatnot, and so naturally they kind of fell into this, but he used his loft down on 18th Street, and he constructed all the interior. So everything that you see in the hotel, all the rooms, they're all in his loft. Okay. Yeah. Damn. So, yeah. Including the sign outside, the lobby, if you want to call it that, mm. with the hotel manager. That was actually inside of a Franklin Street service elevator. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Damn. So it made me wonder, because, you know, typically when you watch films like this, it makes you wonder, like, I wonder if that place still exists, like that hotel, because that place looked seedy, and it's not even a hotel. Drew, it's fucked up. So it's weird that you even bring that up, because just yesterday I was reading an article that basically most of the locations in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World don't exist anymore. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's pretty remarkable when you think about it. And that movie isn't even that old. No, it's not. But what I found interesting, like it said, is... It passes. It's believable enough that you wouldn't know any difference. So, oh, I never would have fucking thought. Kudos. Yeah, that's fucking amazing. Yeah. So, put a little lamppost by that name because there's another lady and they were married. She and Eugis, and they have a daughter together. I mean, she's much older now, but there's something else involving those two. I want to mention later on. But anyhow, that's what I was getting at with the introduction of Dwayne going and checking into the hotel and showing the wad of cash. That wad of cash was actually the real budget for the entire film. <laughs> and Lauder said that. He's like, yeah, it was the literally the entire budget. I was going to say he was fucking... He was fucking... Loaded. Loaded, but now knowing that that was the budget, I'm like, oh, shit, they needed more money. <laughs> yeah, man. I read somewhere where like the initial budget was like around 16 grand, and most of it was... All of Hen and Lauder's like life savings, and then they kept showing, yeah, you know, I guess to different people, like, here's what we've got, we need some more money, and people will help out with funds and whatnot. So, anyway, long story short, is you know, you get the check in, you meet the one of the crazy ladies who's telling him, Dwayne, that is the story of the old lady that used to live. And number seven. I kept upon rewatch. <laughs> I kept trying to figure out if that had anything. If you could relate that to the plot in any way. That's what I was wondering, but no. I can't figure it out. If y'all can figure it out, let us fucking know, because that'd be awesome. That add another layer to this movie. But <laughs> like, I upon re-listen, I'm like, is this some sort of fucking allegory? Not, Not that even I can my read fucking stone ass could tell. Like, no, I, I don't even. I, you hate to speculate because. At this point, I, I don't have any concrete evidence, but just a little bit of what I glean watching some of this behind-the-scenes stuff is I feel like some of this stuff, which is thrown in for comedy's sake, because oh, it yeah. is just kind of, like, ridiculous. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it was totally absurd. I, I, I mean, it's interesting, it. though. Yeah, I fucking dug it. I think it's fucking hilarious. Well, I do she think say it's she, funny. The lady was from Texas, had a bunch of wealth and oil or whatever, and she moved away and holed up, and they're like, they'll never know well, where I'm at. you just fucks <laughs> off. You're like, what was that? Yeah, no, it's fucking absurdly funny, but I kept wondering, I'm like, is this, or am I just way too stoned? Maybe both. Probably a little bit but of both. Why can't I come up with an answer, <laughs> then? I know. That would have been a, a neat little side story, you know, if they ever went into it, but regardless... What I got out of it right after this is once he settles in, he goes down and talks to those guys. He's like, you know, where can I get some food? 
He's like, uh, nothing too expensive for your taste, I hope. <laughs> the guy's like, right across the street. Anyway, what he winds up doing is getting a bunch of cheeseburgers, and he goes back. Dude, those guys down in the fucking lobby. <laughs> They're pretty decent, man. They're fucking something else. He's loaded. So are, so you. are you. Yeah, the manager does a good job, man. Even that guy, that weird, goofy guy does a mm-hmm. good job. So when he goes back and feeds... World Trade Center. Oh, I was going to say, that was the next thing. I was going to say just a little bit with the cheeseburgers. Oh. That's kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of the goofiness, uh, the interaction that Kevin Dwayne's going to have in the Belial the whole time. <laughs> this is getting a little crazy. But you're right. Where does it all go? Like, look, we're in the spoiler section. Like, yeah. literally, where does it all go in, like... He doesn't seem to have much of a stomach, but he also doesn't seem to have, like, a working asshole. I don't know, but he's ripped as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he'll fucking dick slam him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that, but... Oh, yeah. But you're right. I don't know. I don't even know if they've thought that through, but you make a solid point. Where, where does, does it go? go? <laughs> Blah, where does it... Does he just fucking puke it up? Like, does he get, like... Possibly puke up his shit. <laughs> yeah, like, like it goes down, and then like it gets done and does everything it needs to, but it, then it doesn't have anywhere to go down, so it just comes up. Possibly. Is that, does that why his life sucks up? I mean, his life sucks anyway. You're right. Like, yeah. Look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not getting laid uh, willingly <laughs> with anybody, unfortunately. But well, he yeah, can't. that's a good point. No, you right. know, of course. Well, there's nothing. Well, let's hold off on that for a bit. <laughs> we'll get into Wasn't that. Wasn't that the implication? We'll get, we'll get into that. <laughs> All right. You mentioned Twin Towers. You're right. And I, I wrote that down. Never forget. Never forget. Yeah. And my next note was Keyholes. Oh, oh, yeah. Never forget. That and what was the other one that we did? Hellraiser 3. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Go figure. Never forgets. All right. Peepholes, Casey, they, it appears like she's a prostitute, perhaps, Lady of the Night. Mm-hmm. She catches dude going back upstairs, looking through Dwayne's peephole because he knows the money's in there, right? She busts him, the guy wanders off, and then they introduce themselves. Casey was cool as shit. No, she's super cool. The thing about her was when they auditioned her and stuff like that, they only had her written in as just like a bit character, almost like, the, t- the rest of the tenants. Mm-hmm. But because of her performance, they liked her so much, they actually wrote her in as like a secondary main character. Oh, yeah. She's fucking cool as shit. Right. Little side note, little tangent here is they discovered her because she was working with Divine, who worked with John Waters and Pink Flamingos and oh, stuff shit. like that okay. on an off Broadway play. Uh, it was like. What was I just saying about shit and mouths? <laughs> I think it was something like Women Behind Bars or something like that. And that's how inadvertently they found her because they actually wanted divine they had written her into a different story because divine wanted to do something more straight laced and out of drag Mm. right and so you know they had her in mind but something didn't have you know they couldn't work on a project together for whatever reasons and hence why beverly bonner got the part and whatnot and she wanted to work on all his films lauder hen and lauder that is afterward i mentioned in the credits yeah but for Obvious reasons. She kills it. She does a really good job. She's likable. She doesn't force her lines. You know, even in her like kind of little bit of schlocky moments, they're still pretty decent, man. It fits what's going on in the film. Yeah. You know? All right. The next little bit that we get is actually Needleman's office and Sharon, the receptionist, right? 
there's a little bit of comedy because she thinks initially that Dwayne is a repair man and she's telling him about the typewriter making all the noises and he's like I'm here to see Nittleman. I'm a friend of the family. She's just she's already hitting on him and you could tell there's so, you know, we've mentioned this before. It's a little, you know, it's a little rushed or a little forced, but it's not too bad. She's a terrible flirt. She's more getting pissed than anything else. It's weird, especially <laughs> when you realize she's trying to flirt. Like, yeah. Um, how much do you figure Bilal weighs? Ooh, the mass. Um, I, I, that's I a good started question. wondering about this scene because it's at this point I'm like, he's bringing that fucking thing everywhere. Yeah, it gets heavy after a while. I mean, you can tell in the scenes there's nothing in it when he's carrying it. Exactly. Around, but it's supposed to have Bilal in it. Right, right. I, you know, aside from the movie's sake, in terms of within the frames of the movie, like if it was a real thing, I would wager maybe 25, 30 ish pounds on the heavy side. I was going to say maybe about 40 on the heavy. Yeah. But somewhere in that, I could see 40 being the top. Yeah. But I wouldn't say any less than like 15 ish somewhere around there. Not at all. No, I, I, I think he has to be at least 20. Yeah. I'd say, yeah, 20 to 40, somewhere in there. Realistically. Fuck. That's a lot of weight to be toting around Manhattan. Even if you're on a sub, doesn't it doesn't matter. Everywhere, dude. That shit sucks. <laughs> that would Fuck really suck. You Belisle. I know, dude. Not fun. In a fucking wicker basket on top of it. <laughs> you know? So anyhow, he uses a fake name. And he does this more than once in this film, but he tells her he's Mr. Smith and he goes in, he actually sees the doctor. Now, kind of what I like, too, is that she mirrors, Sharon, that is, she mirrors the drug dealer a little bit from earlier on because when she's asking Dwayne, you know, he's like, I'm new to New York or whatever, and she's like, have you seen any sightseeing? He's like, no, I haven't had the time. And then she's listing off all these landmarks. Yeah. And she's doing it kind of like the drug dealer. You haven't seen this or that or that? Uh, you know. Spilling it off. I, I kind of like that. My like, bedroom? Yeah. <laughs> There's a little bit of mirroring. with. You wouldn't think that would happen in a film like this because of how schlocky it is, but I have to give Hen and Lauder some credit because the, the writing's actually pretty decent in this film. It's not bad at all. I mean, as wild and as silly as it is, it connects itself very well <laughs> with lines. I noticed that the second time through. I, oh, man. I fucking love the little bit after. It's like, I don't want him to hear. Who, the doctor? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, hell yeah, Dwayne, go get them numbers. Go get them digits. He does. Now, here's something, too. Those numbers, you always hear 555, whatever. No, they're like real phone numbers. Now, most of all these people are from Glen Falls, which is like upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And I looked because one of the numbers was a 518 area code. I was like, oh, damn, they're using real phone numbers. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> That's kind of fucked up. I wonder whose number that was. It's the 8675309 uh, shit. Yeah, I know, right? People got called all the time with that shit. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fucked up. When Needleman, like I said, sees Dwayne, he shows him and he sees the scar and you tell it, it shook his ass. It shook him bad, <laughs> you know? And a little bit later on, Dwayne goes to a Kung Fu cinema. He sees a, a Sonny Chiba film. Mm-hmm. Right with Belial, I read that that was actually uh, that cinema. I think it was a, a club for you know for oh, yeah. gay people back in the eighties and stuff like that. And there's other scenes in this film, but they were borrowed 
from a William Friedkin film from a, the same time period I've actually mentioned before. Mm. But once we get to that scene, I'll mention where where that's at. All right, but this one isn't a real theater. This is, I think, a, a gay club they shot at. But anyway, the whole point is he's drifting on Dwayne. He's drifting off. He's getting sleepy, and that dude steals the basket and makes it all the way to the bathroom and kicks the lock off. It's like, that lock is cheap. <laughs> that's my first yeah. thought. And you hear the guy scream, and it wakes up Dwayne. Now, the guy didn't die, but he got fucked up pretty good. And he, he's telling Belial, he's like, save it. We need to save that for later because they're going back to Needleman's, and they do. And Sharon's leaving for the night. They sneak in. You can tell my boy shook still. He hears that noise because Belial, like, knocked down that fucking door. And one thing I wrote about this is, like, this shot, might be one of my favorite shots because it's not one that's used a lot. It's kind of a tracking shot. But after that guy hears that loud noise, he pops out of the door frame and he's kind of looking around and then you follow him. And I was like, I kind of like that, man. That's like that part of the gorilla shooting I like about this film. Well, and there's the fucking phone call he has with Cutter. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's some of the funniest shit. <laughs> it's fucking funny. And it's also like, how is Cutter not a villain in another horror story by these guys. Oh my gosh, dude. I wrote down a little bit what she says, but when he calls her, he's telling her about Lifflander because he's looking through his like missed messages. He sees the urgent message. He tries to call Lifflander, the guy from the beginning of the film who gets killed. Needleman calls Cutter and he's like, she's like telling him, he's like, didn't I tell you never to call her? Because she's having dinner with this younger guy. She's getting him fucked up. <laughs> you know, this is going to sound... Take it for what it's worth. <laughs> when I looked at her, like, you know, she's an 80s attractive female, mm -hmm. right? But then I looked in her face, I was like, man, she looks a lot like Jon Favreau. <laughs> <laughs> and all I could imagine was like, damn, if Jon Favreau put on a wig and had some nice boobs, he could have played her part. <laughs> but anyway. So here's my point about her, though. Yeah. Is she's getting this young guy fucked up. I mean, legit, like, you're cute when you slobber. Yeah. And then later in the movie, <laughs> after we find out that she was one of the ones involved, well, by this time... Right, we, right, we okay, know she's involved. We know she's involved, but we find out everything that happened. And to shit. what extent, yeah. You then find out that after she did this fucking black market surgery, <laughs> back alley surgery on conjoined twins, she employs twins as her receptionists. That's some fucking, like, Nazi eugenicist shit, right? Yeah, like, it's pretty wild. Now, I'm glad you pointed that out, too, because that's something, it's kind of a trademark of Hannah Lauder. He likes using twins in mm -hmm. his films. Put a little side note next to those twins later on, the receptionist, too. Interesting little footnote about them. But I also, like, that just makes her seem even more... More sinister. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Oh, speaking of twins, too, there's a scene a little bit later on where you actually see... O'Donovan's room, the peeper who's looking in the peephole of Dwayne. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That dude, there's some twins on the wall and they happen to be naked. Yeah, I saw those. <laughs> so there's no coincidence why they were chosen. I read somewhere that I think they were the first twin centerfolds featured in Playboy mm. for, you know, for whatever that's worth. But mm -hmm. yeah, that's what that was. But no, that's kind of an interesting little thing that Hannah Lauder likes to do in his films. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's cool that you point that out. But all right. <laughs> I was going to propose this more like 
a silly line. But anyway, after she has a phone call with Needleman, and I like how she closes it out. She's like, both of us are not from Glen Falls. We've never done this. She's like, and one of us has to get back to dinner. <laughs> and she pretty much hangs up on him. And then she sits down. She says, sorry about that, Cuddles. Now, where were we? <laughs> but I was going to do the, now, where are we, T-Bear? <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I'll ever find that moment, but I like that line. It's, it's fucking silly. Yeah. So anyhow, what that leads to is, like I said, it leads to Needleman's death is essentially what happens because Belial pops out on him. It's pretty good. He's, he does a classic psych-out move. <laughs> he actually is inside of his office because the guy's like trying to barricade himself back in, and then he sees the lights go off in his office room, and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, and then you get to see kind of the silliness of the attacks, but the gruesomeness, too. And I was like, good on those guys for the makeup effects. And Belial himself is somehow both just at times weirdly horrifying to look at and at other times just silly. silly. Yeah. Because it's just a puppet, <laughs> you know, it's just a cast. Sometimes it works. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it's it really effective, um, which is, I like that about this film too. It's not just one thing. It's multiple. Like you said, there's moments where you get to see the eyes and movements and some of the stop motion. <laughs> so, this part that I did like, this is a part of the writing technique I was mentioning earlier that I thought was kind of interesting because Needleman, when he's talking to Cutter, he's talking about the fact that he's like, yeah, the, this kid from, you know, he obviously was using an alias, but this kid from Glen Falls came down and I was, he was talking about Lifflander and he's dead and blah, blah, blah. He said he was cut in half. And that's actually what happens to him when you see the aftermath. Mm. You see his upper torso and then as it's kind of scanning the room, you see his bottom half in the blood trail leading out the window and it's like ah that's kind of interesting and the dad kind of got it in half too exactly and it makes sense because these guys were separated Mm -hmm. yeah split in half if you want to call it that that. that's what i'm saying this movie's pretty fucking clever and if if you're somewhat paying attention no 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 hers is completely different it's interesting like i said because it was a different special effects makeup artist on that Mm. Mostly because of the budget. (laughs) But still not bad. Not bad. All right. What this leads to is they get Needleman's Rolodex. There's a few things I noticed about this film that you hardly ever see anymore. You'll see them, but you don't hardly ever use them. A, a Rolodex. B, a telephone book. (laughs) It's like, when's the last time you looked up a phone number in a telephone book? I thought the same. I was like, oh, shit. That's back when telephone books were useful. Yeah, I still get one every year. I do too, but I, I never use it. it. I never use it. What's in it? I guess old people's landline phones and probably mostly businesses, I would imagine. But that's it's always been that way. It's just weird that a relic from the past is still around, you know, in, in an updated form because it's mm-hmm. people still use them, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Yeah. But at one time, we did. They stack up for a couple of years, I get rid of them. They stack yeah. up for a couple of years, I get rid of them. <laughs> right? So I did make a little side note about that. But what I was getting at is because Cutter's information wasn't in the phone book, they get it from the Rolodex because you do see that's how he mm-hmm. you know, makes the phone call to her. All right. The next day, Dwayne's telling Belial, he's like, hey, you know, you don't need to come with me. I'm just going to do some little footwork, you know, check on Cutter. I need to see her schedule so that way I know when she's popping in and out. But what he's really doing is setting up a day date with Sharon. 
Because as soon as he leaves, he's running right on over there. Good on him. She's cute. Yeah, super cute. Apparently, she was like in a punk rock band around yeah. that time. Yeah, I was like, that's pretty awesome. And they go to the Statue of Liberty, which was another one of those scenes that they didn't have a permit for. They were on their, the assumption that they would have enough film shot mm. that even if they were approached, they would have already shot the scene and they wouldn't have to worry about it. They're like, okay, we're just going to leave <laughs> <laughs> so another one of those things they got that shot in and they start to have a little romance right he plants a kiss on her but that sets off Belial back at the hotel because he actually gets him a, a television too right <laughs> yeah um, first uh, snaps the fucking we know Belial isn't stupid no or isn't but he's stupid as shit because <laughs> what the fuck is with that tantrum I know. You're like, you need also, to calm your rage, if, bro. If you're going to be all pissed about this, Blal, you know your situation. Like, you just need to work it out with Dwayne that he goes and gets the action and you psychic link and just rub one out at home. That's right. That is right. You know your situation. Look at Psychic tag team. <laughs> there's a mirror right in the other room, Blal. And I'm sorry for your circumstance, but I didn't even know if you can rub one out. I know. It's like, don't, don't be a hater. But if you're going to be getting pissed because you got separated from your brother, you got to treat your brother better. I agree. I agree. Considering how much Dwayne Does is for doing for both. All yeah. Time, carrying sack, his 20 to 40 pound ass around. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's real brother right there for you. You know? So <laughs> it sets him off. Like he goes in that rage, tearing up that fucking room. It's funny because you're right. The tenants come out. The manager's coming up. You get to see that. Old school stop motion, <laughs> which I like, man. That was pretty, you know, it's not bad. But uh, when they do finally get in, they can't find anything. Dwayne interrupts his date because, you know, he feels it too. He knows something's happening. He doesn't know what exactly, but he's running back, has to leave Sharon. They can't find Belial because he's hiding. O'Donovan, though, while they're in there, he sees the cash and everybody's oh, getting yeah. ushered out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he sneaks his way back up there. And then Belial fucks him up and it makes his way back to his room, O'Donovan. That's when you see the poster on the wall of the chicks or whatever. But he gets it pretty good. Like Mm -hmm. his murder looked pretty damn decent. And his screams and all that shit draws the attention back upstairs again. And, you know, they find O'Donovan. He's murdered. Dwayne finally makes it back. And by then, I think there's the detectives there because he's like storming upstairs. And the detective notice. Yeah. Like, yeah. He like actually touches his hand while he's like turning the doorknob. <laughs> like, man, that was sexy. I mean, um <laughs> that was different. <laughs> you know, but that's what happens. He just he's like, What's in the basket? Which is a common refrain, what's in the basket? You know, he wants to know is about his alibi, where he's been, what have you. And as he's going to open the basket, the detective is Belial's not in there and he's like, Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> you know. Even like, man, some of the shit he says, it's like, it should be warnings enough. Like, he's like, yeah, last night we were, just, we were having hamburgers. Like, we, he's like, no, no, me. It's like, what kind of hamburgers were you eating where you had to thrash your bedroom or the room that you rented out? Yeah, if the hamburgers are that bad, that's Jesus. not the room you're thrashing. The bathroom's the room you're thrashing. I know, right? Which is a funny coincidence because after those guys leave, Belial comes up out of the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> you're like damn that's classic got him and then Dwayne he's all loud and shit 
arguing because he's like, yes, okay, I didn't go to cutters. Yes, I was with receptionist. Yes, all this other stuff. And I would have been like, dude, you, you need, need to chill. To like, if I can chill, rub one out. Right. You're obviously experiencing this psychically. Just you let me experience it. Yeah. Experience it. It's like you I need grab to, titty, you grab titty. You need to relax on your hormones, bro. <laughs> but they do have kind of a brother-to-brother moment because Dwayne is like, he's like, you know, he's like, I never desert you. He's like, I'm, you know, we're always going to be together. He's, that's what he's pretty much telling. He's like, you need chill, dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, we've made it this far. Shit, man. Now, I don't buy that he's 20, you but... killed people, son. <laughs> I know. We've been traveling from upstate all the way down to Manhattan, slaying. <laughs> Oops, state. Oops, state. So anyway, after this, Dwayne and Casey have the drinks at the bar. So here comes that lamppost back out, right? That's funny. You don't... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she doesn't. He's like, I don't... <laughs> They're having a good time. Now that bar, right... All the people in there were actually friends of Beverly Bonner's. Oh, dope. Yeah, so I was like, oh, that's really cool. Now, where the club was at, this is where it gets really interesting. So William Friedkin, gentleman we've mentioned several times, Exorcist, the movie that this was used in was in the film Cruising with Al Pacino. Oh, shit. And so they got to shoot at this place. It was actually two places, but one of them, Happened to be at this place called Badlands, which is off Christopher Street. And the other one's the Hellfire Club. And I put they were both featured in William Friedkin's uh, cruising. But Henenlotter and some of the crew were mentioned, they're like, they had to shoot around a lot of the props because a lot of the props were still in cruising. They were still at those clubs. And a lot of it's like BDSM stuff. Mm -hmm. And they said they had like the swing set up where apparently there was like anal fisting going on and shit. Yeah. And he's like, you know, a lot of the crew wanted to get their picture taken in it and all that stuff. <laughs> he said, but also there's a scene where the father later on in that little flashback sequence, he goes downstairs. I was shot in one of the clubs. He oh. said, but what they were doing. I was so jealous of how big that fucking basement was. I know. It psyched me out a little bit because it's like the way that you see him in the hallway, I was thinking that he was going upstairs and not downstairs because you mm-hmm. get it from the oh, bottom up. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, oh, okay, Whew. I had to rewind that for a second. It's like, am I tripping or what the fuck? Anyway, they shot that at one of the clubs. But Hennenlauter said they had to shoot around a lot of sex stuff. And he said they even had to shoot. He's like, they had to cover glory holes. (laughs) 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 It's like, I was reading that stuff because as a part of the Arrow, there's a little booklet that came along with it. I was like, oh my God, this is nuts, man. Fucking amazing. Yeah. So like I said, most of the extras, Beverly Bonner's friends, shot at this set that cruising used for the BDSM clubs and gay bar scenes and all that stuff. So I was like, this is pretty neat, man. Cause it's, you starting to see these New York city connections. So that's one of them. There's some others later on, but this is where Dwayne and Casey are having drinks. And one thing I like about it, it, it is kind of endearing is their laughter. It feels authentic. Mm-hmm. You can tell they're having a good time. And it was kind of hinted. There was an interview I watched with Beverly and they were talking about that scene and they were like, you know, were you guys really drinking? She's like, I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you make up your own mind. But what he's telling her, because once again, the question gets brought up, you know, what's in your basket? It's my brother. Yeah, and they're like laughing. And man, he says something that's it's fucked up, but it is funny at the same time because he's kind of describing it. 
the lie like on a squashed octopus. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and he's laughing, and he keeps going into it, and then you're like, um, this is getting kind of weird. I mean, this is one of those movies where it'd be kind of interesting to see somebody do a remake that really leaned into the potential emotionality of all this, mm -hmm. of like having to deal with this kind of abusive and very fucking oh, man. selfish brother who has been dealt one of the shittiest hands in life. So I know. like you owe, and he's your brother. So like you want to help, but it leans a little bit into like, you know, are you your brother's keeper mm -hmm. essentially, you know, kind of that debate, but you can see it's leading into the emotional aspect of this film, right? Where Wayne puts his head down on the table and it goes into the flashback sequence and it's immediately, I guess, post-birth, right? Mm -hmm. Where the father's damning the monster and, you know, we got to name two of them. It was them. all pretty hammy, but I, it I certainly was. Dug it. I fucking dug it. I did too. I was like, this is so 80s, but it's not, it's not the worst you're going to get. It's not great. <laughs> it's not necessarily good, but it's not bad either. It's not bad. No. So the dad, you know, is, you could tell, like, he's, he's sad and he's angry and upset because the mom died in childbirth and he's got a creature, you know, for a son. And he's kind of pointing the blame a little bit. At, it might be his sister. It might be his sister-in-law. It's the aunt regardless, but it's like, now you want me to name both of them? <laughs> They're right. abomination. Fast forward a little bit and Dwayne, and you get to see, you know, he's a teenager or whatever. And the father's starting to plot with Lifflander on having it removed and it's kind of, there's a little bit of a funny scene where they're on the stairwell listening in mm -hmm. and you can see belial's reaction to it. He's, like, <laughs> he's like what the fuck all right listening to what the doctors are saying mm -hmm. now i'm no doctor and i'm certainly no specialist in conjoined twins but i feel like if all they share is skin and a little bit that's of what tissue, tissue yeah then they probably would have been separated as toddlers. You would think. Because it has to be easier to care for them separately than stuck together. Oh, man. It'd be a nightmare. If that's all it is. Just if that's all it is, yeah, 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 do it early. I have to imagine that would be kind of like standard protocol in that case, right? Like, Yeah, but, you know, we can overlook that <laughs> for the film's sake. But, yeah, I, you know, logically thinking. Because I was thinking that, too, is like, we're at in this film or do they explain where they got separated you know i i wasn't thinking it was going to be 13 14 15 years old or wherever it happened to be mm -hmm. you know so and that's where we find out Lifflander, he's a veterinarian he gets the help of his veterinarian friend cutter and her associate needleman that's how they get involved with it and <laughs> it's so bad is when they do finally drag Dwayne into their dining room whatever the fuck it is his lines, you can tell how bad the ADR is. God damn it, let me go. No, <laughs> just very stilted. But yeah, the ball aisle getting the injections kind of silly, but you know, it is what it is. And they're putting the boy under the gas, and the separation's not bad. I mean, yeah. the effects look pretty good. It's still a little silly, but it doesn't look bad. <laughs> and when he pops out the one time, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like this shit. Oh, I love getting high watching films like this. Oh and yeah, and so you know the kid wakes back up later on. And he's got the bandages on him, but then he's getting the telepathic thing with Belial, and he's like, "Yes, where are you?" That one way telepathy's got to suck too. Yeah, and it's sad because I was like, "Man, 
I even wrote it down like this. It's like, why did I got throw my man's away in a goddamn trash bag? Right? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, his hand comes out and you're like, ah, oh. you're right. I think with a better budget, you know, better what have you, you could feel the emotional impact of that scene a little bit more, you know, because that's, mm-hmm. that's a scene where it's supposed to pull you in and make you feel for them. And you get to see the early telepathic link they have, too, is mm-hmm. what I'm getting at. And, yeah, so they connect. But then that's when they plot on their dad. Dude, two words for you. Saw wagon. Dude, guess what? That saw wagon was at one of those BDSM clubs and somebody stole it. <laughs> because mind you, that shot happened down in the basement and that's in the basement of one of those clubs. Right. Yeah. So I read that. I was like, damn, that's crazy. That was actually, they didn't even make that. It was already there. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, yes. dude. Holy shit, dude! Saw wagon is dope. Yeah, yeah, you could see the cuts too when the legs fall over. Mm-hmm. But I was like, good, he deserves it. Fuck him, All right? And then that's when the aunt takes care of them, right? She like goes upstairs, and she's like, I don't care what happened. You know, you guys have gone through hell as it is. You know, and he comes out, and then Belial comes out, and she's reading him. I think uh, Shakespeare's Tempest. There's a certain scene and act that she reads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and if it's about the monster mm-hmm. and whatnot. So you can tell that this guy, and it's even been noted by some of the people in the cast who know Hannah Lauder really well, that he was a fan of like universal monsters. So it it's no coincidence that there's probably a little bit of like Frankenstein, yeah, and Tempest, and like the creature feature kind of stuff, you know, universal and even before, so... I can see that little bit why you could attach the creature feature to it. Right. You know, but anyhow, she takes care of him. That's why Belial, they don't know that Belial is not dead. Right. They just assume that after, like, yep. Gonna be Nobody safer. needs to know. Yep. Be safer. Yep. And then, you know, it's, it appears more recently that their aunt has passed away because when you get to see Dwayne, he's much older. He looks like he, what he is now. Right. Right. And in thus begins their journey. So it snaps back out of that, that flashback and Casey is helping Dwayne back up to his room, right? He's all fucked up in the door frame. She gets him in bed and he snaps out of it because they forgot Lyle on the hallway and puts him on the dresser. That was good. Yeah. And because of the story and because of what he just did, it piques her curiosity. She wants to take a peek in the basket. And when she does, there's nothing in it. And you're like, okay. But then she goes into her room. Now, once again, this was actually the first room they constructed in the loft, her room. So I want to skip a little bit ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. She gets felt up a little bit, gets woke up. There's Blyle. Mm-hmm. Holy fucking scream queen. Yeah, she's good, that dude. That was a hell of a scream, dude. That that's, was a goddamn good horror fucking That's movie why scream. I feel like they, when I say they, Penn and Lauder, chose to keep featuring her in his films because she gives a good performance, man. That's a perfect example of it, yeah. That, that fucking, that impressed me. That impressed me a lot. No doubt. Uh, <laughs> I'll bring it back out here in a little bit, that that other lamp. <laughs> because, um, actually, let me back up a little bit. There's a scene when there's a social worker, I think, during that flashback sequence, goes upstairs to check on the boys and shit because she's homeschooling the aunt, that is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to make mention of that woman. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. so her name is Elza Balduis. Anyhow, she was married to you, just Nigel's the guy who was friends with Hannah Lauder, who had used his loft 
Okay. For all this shit. So they were, I think they were married at the time and they had a, a daughter at the time. She was like seven or eight. This is, <laughs> this is fucking crazy. So they said that they used the, their daughter in the scenes where it was like really tight spaces where they had to put Belial in. Reason being is because they used a real life cast. I think of the actor, Kevin, who plays Dwayne. And they used Rick Baker's oven apparently, like in his mm. studios. But something happened where it was shrinking the cast. And so people who would normally, like the adults who could put their hands in and manipulate and all that shit, they couldn't get their hands in it. It was too tight. And then that's where that woman, who was the social worker, who oh. was friends with Kevin, apparently they were like partners at one time. And she was also at this Academy of the Dramatic Arts somewhere in New York. And that's how she got all these other people on board because they were all in the same theater with her. Crazy. So most of the, like, the people who played the doctors, the woman who played Dr. Cutter, mm-hmm. some other people, most of them were in the theater with her, including Sharon, the receptionist, too. She was a part of that dramatic class with them. Oh, sweet. Yeah, so okay. I was like, man, this is... You can see how all this shit's starting to fit together. But anyway, I wanted to mention her because she had a lot to do with helping with the casting for the film with a lot of the scheduling and she put a lot of effort into this film even though she has a little bit part and you wouldn't think much of it but the daughter (laughs) she was in like some of the scenes where it was like some of the bed scenes where she had to get in the bed and like move the hands around and shit and the pillows i but like from the pov shots that Mm -hmm. was the director i think he was the one like touching the the boobs and all that stuff (laughs) yeah so anyhow you're right back to casey she lets out the scream queen yell. It draws the attention of the tenants, the manager. They all come upstairs. They see nothing in her bedroom. They see the window open. The manager does. But by that time, he's already snuck back in his basket. And But what he's got is a little souvenir from his encounter in Beverly's. Do you remember what it was? This sets something off a little bit later on. It's something she took off. Did he grab her panties? Yes, he did. <laughs> I was like, you little freak. <laughs> right. But anyhow, what this leads to is a little bit later on the night, Dwayne wakes up and he goes over to the basket and he's telling Belial, he's like, all right, let's do this. So they make their way down to Cutters. And once again, he uses an alias. He's Mr. White this time. He's in the lobby and you get to see the two receptionists. Mm-hmm. One's like a nurse, one's a receptionist. The twins, the redhead twins. Now, they're real life cousins of Henenlotter. Okay. There's a really cool interview of them. They're from Long Island, and they talked about growing up with Hen and Lauder and how he used to like make them go in to the basement. Not as dirty as it sounds, but he would show them like old films. Mm. So they watched The Mummy and Frankenstein and all these other you know old school horror films. And they said he used to give us nightmares for weeks, but we loved them, mm-hmm. right? And he would use them in his short films and stuff, and it eventually led them into this film. That's cool. But they mentioned that, you know, okay, he that's, that's cool. another one of his motifs. He wanted to use twins. <laughs> they happen to be twins. Anyhow, long story short, is he finally gets into Cutter's office. He tells her that his cat got hurt <laughs> and all that shit. And she starts to put it together, like his story and who he is. And she says a line that, <laughs> that was kind of funny. She's like, I want to give you like two seconds to get out of here. Otherwise, I'm going to chop off something that uh, you, you might else have a growth or there might be another growth that's growing that mm-hmm. you need to be cut off. <laughs> you know what she's implying at. But um, she begs the question, what's in the basket? And she finds out. <laughs> Dude, Belial fucks her. Oh. Yes, he does, that man. That was dope. 
I liked that. And because that was of some good fucking effects. And like so because of the budget, that's where that guy you just Nigel's came in and had to do the the makeup and stuff. And he said that they were doing a lot of patchwork for the tubing and shit. They just improvising a lot. And he said initially you could barely get any blood out because there wasn't enough compression to mm, make the blood mm-hmm. go out. He says oh he literally had to jump on like the blood bags to Damn. get the effects and he wasn't sure if it was going to blow her face off and shit with the makeup but it worked everything worked out and it leads to her you know getting really fucked up because once Dwayne and Belial leave that office after they fuck her up the twins come in and they see all the scalpels in her face and mm-hmm. she she's so emotive with her hands that actress cause she, <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know basically just die already but she's nope, to be an extra <laughs> She's being extra. Uh, oh. But it, it adds to the appeal of this film because it's like, this is so over the top, but it's, it's actually pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know? All right, so everything seems hunky-dory. They've pretty much taken care of all the doctors and their dad, everybody involved with the separation. But there's kind of a classic psych-out move, and I like this because Sharon, she's like at the hotel. She runs into Dwayne, and she's telling him about Needleman, and the detect, you know, detectives asking her, questioning her, and it's got her shook up, and she's been thinking about him all day and she doesn't know why and she just needs to be with somebody and naturally they go upstairs and things get a little sexy and once again, Bilal ain't having it, man. Cock block. <laughs> Dude, you even could have watched that one. I know. Psychically, he could have led Dwayne to do things because what I got out of that, right, is once he comes out, I thought telepathically he was forcing That's Dwayne to I hold her down. And then he puts the fucking covers around her and throws her out the room. You know, and of course she's like banging on the door and there's commotion going on and Dwayne's pissed off. He's like, damn you. I'm trying to get some. Damn you's all the I'm hell. trying to get some, bro. Come on, man. Dude, Blyle's the worst cock block. Jeez, and it's your Dude, brother. You Come know Quato wouldn't do that shit. No, 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 no. What the fuck, man? So, yeah, once again, he's got Blyle fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> got my boy fucked up you know and once again it's got Sharon like what the fuck was that what's going on you know all the people come back upstairs causing a scene right <laughs> it's kind of fucked up dude I'm surprised homeboy hasn't been kicked out this is kind of what I like too is once everybody comes upstairs and they're seeing what the commotion's about you know Dwayne's trying to tell him to get the fuck out of the room and Bilal pops out Bilal grabs his brother by the cocks. Fucking dick slam. <laughs> it's like this motherfucker. Blyle just like one arm curls like a 160 pound man while using only his fucking sack to hold on to. Oh man, it's fucked up. Well, I think that's a little bit later on, but he does. Ha- that does happen. <laughs> uh, this is kind of how it leads into that, all that shit. Is I guess after their little that little thing that happens with the kiss and all that shit in the room, is later on that night, Belial, I don't know if he's like playing mind tricks or using some kind of telepathic shit on his brother while he's sleeping, but his eyes are glowing and I he think gets he on for sure read his mind enough to know where she lives. I, that's what I was thinking. I was like, he's scanning him is what he's doing. And yeah, he jumps up on the, like the window ledge and <laughs> after his eyes are glowing. I liked all that shit, but he's sneaking off over to Sharon's. And that's when you go into Dwayne's dream and he's butt naked (laughs) running through the streets. 
in his dream, it looks like he's having a wet dream. Like he's running up the stairs to Sharon's and she's, yeah. he does a little caress. <laughs> It's like, hey, does the legs, get some, you know, some feelies on the boobies. Give me a little bit of that. Yeah, I want some of that. And then the camera starts to make that movement. We're like, oh, damn, he's doing some sleep assault shit on her. But then Dwayne comes out of his dream and Belial's gone and he's starting to put it together. He's like, this motherfucker. So then he, he does run over because when we get is Belial's raping her and he starts to choke her out because she's waking up at that point. Mm-hmm. And it appears that he did choke her out. Dwayne finally arrives, finds his brother in that bloody pool. <laughs> that was <laughs> like, fucked up. That was both fucked up, but he's. But like I said, like three minutes later, <laughs> Dwayne says to him, he's like, just because you can't doesn't mean I can't. Yeah. So he was just like, puddle jump in. Yeah, he was. He was squid billing in that shit. <laughs> 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 yeah, squirting ink on her or whatever. I don't know. But yeah, he left a bloody mess. So something was happening. But once Dwayne puts Belial back in the basket, that's when they, you know, all that commotion's happening because he's, I mean, rightfully so, he's fucking pissed off with his brother. He's like, the one girl I like, the one girl I get to kiss, you ruin it. Mm-hmm. All this other shit. Yeah, it's like, you, you cock block me and then you rape her. <laughs> and because of all that shit and because they're bickering, that's when the tenants come in. That's when he gets raised by that's the cock. Sad. Yeah, and then it, they crash out the window, but Belial's holding onto that sign, and he's choking out his brother at the same time. Dude, Belial's the worst. Like, what a dick! I'm gonna hold on to you long enough to make sure that I choke you to death. Yeah, even though it's probably gonna cost me my own grip. Whereas if I just let go of your ass, you might die anyway. Yeah, and but I have a chance to live. <laughs> but that's not what happens uh, because he loses his arm strength, and they both appear to fall to their death. In front of all those people on the street and all those people gather around afterward. We already said they're sequels. They right. lived, but but I will say this I kinda like it better if they die. I do too, because I mean it, it fits, you know, with the story. It's a tragic story, mm-hmm. you know, of two brothers and even though they got the revenge ultimately because they were killing, they had an awful fate too. So it's I just, like that uh, they fall back into their position. Yeah, it's good. I mean, that's what I'm saying. This film in, in its writing is clever. Now, it has to be said that Hannah Lauder wrote this film with the intention of people never seeing it. Because he's like, <laughs> this idea is so ridiculous. He chose a name because no other film had been called this before, and he liked the idea. And he said it was at a Nathan's around Times Square, and he was eating hot dogs. And he was thinking about you know, what, what am I going to do? Like, why would people want to watch this? What, what's the connection? He's like, it occurred to him. He's like, well, what if they were brothers? You know, he's like, oh, there we go. That was his connect. But he was writing basically all this shit out on Nathan's hot dog mm, napkins. <laughs> and then went back after and transcribed it. And that's what made him want to finish the story in the first place. Okay. He just, he said he was actually mortified when it, it gained notoriety and cult status because he didn't expect any of it, and let alone people, you know, pitching in, wanting to make the film in the first place. But of course, you know, over time, because of its cult status, he went on to film all these other films. And there is a certain feel to his films too. There's a certain signature, kind of like Stuart Gordon. When you watch one of his films, you know it's one of his films. When you watch one of Hidden Lauder's films, you know it's one of his films. It has that same feel. So I, I, I find it interesting, man, and all the cool connections they made to. One being getting back to Maniac and William Lustig and Joe Spinell is 
at the premiere, there's a place somewhere in Tribeca is called the Waverly, but they've changed its name to like the IFC theater, I think. Okay. And that was the place where they showed all those midnight movies and, you know, cult yeah. movies and whatnot. But they made the premiere and because they shared a certain, you know, appreciation for film and they had a certain technique that kind of mirrored each other, they became friends. And it happened to be that analysis films were the ones who put out Maniac. Oh, cool. And because of their connection with William Lustig and Spinell, that's how they got analysis to help them distribute this film. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so it's like, man, that's kind of really cool. Here's another little side note I think you might find interesting, is that initially analysis cut this film. There was a lot of cuts in the gore and shit like that. And so when they released it initially, it had a different feel. You know, not what we get. Like the comedy didn't hit and the horror hit different. Right, and they didn't. When I say they, it's the people involved didn't like Hen and Lauder and everybody else mm -hmm. because it was a studio. They had no say in it, right? Uh, but what happened was, is Joe Bob Briggs got to see it at the Cannes Film Festival. He said there was like these little side street theaters that would play all these different films, and this happened to be one of them. And so there's like maybe three or four people in the audience. One of them happened to be a critic who wrote a line. Like I said, it was like the sickest film he'd ever seen. But they use it as a promotional thing on the uh, on the billboards and posters and all that shit. But Joe Bob Briggs really liked it, hmm. and he's like, he communicated with analysis and Frank Hanenlotter, and's like, I want to show this in Dallas. I want to show it in Irving, uncut, and they did, and there was huge success. And then when they showed it at Waverly, uncut, it started getting rave reviews, and that's where the cult status happened. Gotcha. But some of it's owed to Joe Bob Briggs because. He happened to see it, and he happened to think it was like arguably one of the better kind of like exploitation films of that time period, okay. and it fit yeah, yeah. the grindhouse model. And it's just a really campy, good, fun film. Yeah, it really is. Um, I certainly know I enjoyed it. So yeah, so I I found out some really cool shit. Not that I have to share all of it, but it makes me appreciate films like this because not that this is a, a dying you know kind of way of doing films there's still people we even mentioned like one cut of the dead is probably a good example of using super low budget being super creative working with people who are dedicated and you can get success out of it so it's mm -hmm. not always about the budget that you have i think sometimes it's just having the right people being able to pitch in and you know you never know what happens and fortunately for this guy and everybody involved this film you know it's kind of it's wild man it's almost 40 years old and you can still find a lot of amusement out of it and it, it holds up in certain spots so my ultimate question from it all mm -hmm. is what do we have to say to patrick to get him to remake this with marcus's dude all right that was another thing i didn't know how much we want to say it on the air but marcus was in like our last episode of jafar as like a narrator for that infomercial yeah yeah, and I think he was even in some of those psychedelic sequences. Not that you could see him well, but he was definitely in them. Mm -hmm. But you're right. He eerily looks just like Kevin Van Hinton, Rick. And I even told him that at work this week. I was like, dude, please don't take offense. But I show him a picture of the guy, and he's like, I would love to be in that. <laughs> so I'm just saying, there's a chance. So, now, yeah, now we just got to start bugging Patrick. Yep. It's like, dude. That would be so much fun trying to do stop motion. <laughs> oh, now, my God, do our own, our own Blyle. Oh, my God, that'd be so much fun. We've got the kids to, you know, manipulate the arms and stuff if we need it. That's right. Um, That's a go. 
everybody just cross your fingers for us. Oh, no. We'll try to make this happen. Montana basket case. <laughs> you never know. You never know. But, yeah, I really enjoyed this film. I'm, I'm glad this one that we finally got around to doing. I'm glad that you enjoy it, too, because I'm starting to become somewhat of a fan of his, his films. I recently did pick up a copy of Brain Damage, and I've got Frankenhooker on the way, so I'm excited yeah. about those. Hell, yeah. I think that's all I got for this, though. Like I said, it's fun. Uh, I do mention the score pretty decent in this film, too. Yeah. I noticed that a little bit later on. Didn't really pay attention to it much the first go-round, but the second go-round, that's what I said, there's a little bit of a psych out because in the scene where Dwayne and Sharon are up in his room kissing and it, everything seems to be you know going the romantic way, the music is a counterpoint to that because no. the music is a little bit more ominous and it doesn't like, fit the no tone. No yeah. So that's said, there's a psych out moment where you feel like, oh, there's a moment for romance. He can finally, oh, he's got his revenge and he gets nut. Nope. And that's what I like is there's some really interesting choices of music. There's even, I think, a little bit of Italian feel to it, like the Bava mm. kind of era Italian scores in certain scenes. So I know he was using some of his influences, and we've already mentioned some of them before. So anyway, I was surprised with the writing. The score's decent. Acting's not that great, but it's likable. Everybody's likable. Everyone's likable. Yeah, and um, yeah, I highly recommend it, man. Go out there and check it out. I agree. Yeah, if you've never seen it, make sure to go see it. Yep. That being said, we haven't chosen next week, have we? No, we haven't. <laughs> We're no strangers to that either. <laughs> it's okay. Hit subscribe, listen to us next week, whatever the movie might end up being, because it's going to be something, and it's probably going to be fun. Also, please rate and review us however you're listening to us, because that's also super cool, because we like being all up in them algorithms. To go along with that, please go check out our website, www.friedsquirms.com. You can check out all of our back catalog there. You can contact us through the website or by emailing us, squirmcast at gmail.com, finding us across all the social medias at Fried Squirms. But while you're at the website, if you click the links up at the top, we are part of the Earvrim Podcast Network. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. That'd be the easiest place to check out all the different shows on the network. The ones we have now, like me talking about nerdy shit over on General Nerdery. We have the boys over at the Art of War Gaming doing Warhammer 40k mixed with war treatises from the past. And Bellagarth and a few other things. And more shit to come. So keep up with all of that there. That'd be super cool. I already said social medias. Do you have anything to add? Not just once again, if you have recommendations, we do enjoy those. I actually got one last night, so maybe somewhere down the road we can cover that. We do like your suggestions, and once again, if you're an independent filmmaker, need some eyeballs on your film, let us know. We're always up for that challenge. And for this week, I'm Tyler. I've been Danny. Fried Squirms. Out. Out. <laughs>